For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson here to bring you the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter, and also to encourage you, if you haven't already, please to hit the subscribe button for the videos, also sign up for the newsletter via email, and make a one-time or monthly pledge, $2, $3, $5, doesn't have to be big, though we'll take it if you got it, but help us keep bringing facts and logic to the climate debate, including about the predictable demise of COP27, which Rex Murphy dubbed, quote, the annual funeral deliberations from Mother Earth, end quote. We foresaw that this gathering of self-important windbags, who didn't know they didn't know how to do anything about climate, would arrive festooned with implausible promises, only to depart trailing recriminations and fatuities. What we didn't foresee was their brazen decision that limiting greenhouse gases wasn't important if they couldn't agree on how to do it, so instead they struck a world-historic decisive side deal on the minor issue of doling out non-existent reparations funds. As the Telegraph reported, quote, COP27 strikes historic climate compensation deal, but no progress on emissions, end quote. Which are kind of important to the story, or so the activists have certainly seemed to insist for the last 30 years. Now, as you may know, sleep deprivation is actually recognized as a form of torture that is more efficient, as well as less messy, than physical pain. And so the fact that the COP27 delegates were up past 3 a.m. on the scheduled last day and were then kept at it for two more days while food, water, coffee, and even toilet paper were running out presumably helped produce a mental collapse. In its story on the historic compensation deal unaccompanied by progress on the supposedly urgent problem of emissions, the Telegraph started out, quote, Vulnerable developing countries will receive compensation for the impacts of climate change after a historic deal was secured on Sunday morning at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt, end quote. But there is no actual money in the fund, and there's no guarantee that any will go in, let alone the hundreds of billions of dollars that reparations enthusiasts demand. And it matters. Not as much, of course, as it matters from their own point of view that they got nowhere on the emissions that are supposedly at the heart of the looming disaster. As a post-conference Guardian headline put it, quote, World still on brink of climate catastrophe after COP27 deal, end quote. Which sounds kind of bad. But to them, it's just a reason to do another one next year with more of those little sandwiches and sunny beaches. In the newsletter, we also note yet another example of media, politicians, and activists calling heat climate and cold weather. As serious snowstorms hit eastern North America early this year, outlets like CNBC reported things like, quote, residents of northern New York State were digging out Saturday morning from a dangerous lake-effect snowstorm that had dropped more than six feet of snow in some areas and caused several deaths, end quote. But with no reference to climate other than carelessly posting it in their climate section. NBC tried to split the difference, posting in what it calls news rather than its dedicated climate and crisis section that, quote, as the planet has warmed from the increase in greenhouse gases, so have the lakes, meaning more evaporation into the atmosphere during the winter. This has led to an increase in lake effect snow, but that trend is not expected to last, end quote. So, Global warming brings more snow, but also less. The Washington Post grabbed the same song sheet. Quote, Human-caused climate change has the potential to intensify lake-effect snow events, at least in the short term, according to the NOAA's U.S. Climate Resilience Toolkit, end quote. However, 
Quote, the predictions change once lake temperatures rise to a point when much of what now falls as snow will instead fall as rain, end quote. Thus, our great-grandchildren won't know what snow is. This time, for sure. So you better get out there and take pictures of, for instance, Buffalo's 66 inches of snow in 24 hours, an all-time record. And it's not just New England. Casper, Wyoming set cold records. And it's not just the United States. The state of Victoria, Australia, just posted its coldest ever November temperature. More weird weather for sure, but stay tuned for climate change. Although, on the eve of that big climate conference in Egypt, Global News moaned that, quote, Canadian support for climate change initiatives lags ahead of COP27, Ipsos. Dang. And it does look kind of grim, quote, ahead of the COP27 forum, Canada appears to rank near the bottom of 34 countries when it comes to public support for measures to help tackle climate change, a new poll suggests, end quote. Apparently, when people were asked how they felt about the usual green money pits like, quote, subsidies for clean technology and providing incentives to invest in green financial products, Ipsos polling of citizens from 34 countries indicates support among Canadians ranks between the 27th and 31st spots, end quote. And rather characteristically, the pollster responded by insulting the public. Quote, these results are shocking, Sanyam Sethi, vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs, told Global News. Canadians are not as engaged as they should be in the climate debate, end quote. Remember when pollsters measured what people did think, not what they should think? So we're gratified, but we can't take all the credit for the work we've done here at CDN because, quote, support among citizens in the United States, Germany, France, and Brazil also ranked low when it came to the policies proposed, Sethi said. So, maybe sanity is going global. And it may be partly because people here and elsewhere have already had some experience of what climate change policies do in the real world, like make energy unaffordable without reducing emissions. So, if you're looking for a real climate crisis, forget Sharm el-Sheikh and look at the damage climate change policy is doing elsewhere to real people. For instance, quote, Brits are paying the highest electricity bills in the entire world, end quote, having narrowly edged out the Republic of Ireland. And, by a remarkable coincidence, quote, UK faces biggest fall in living standards on record, end quote. Which might not be the best time to try to give away billions of pounds to pay for bad weather on the other side of the world while continuing to hammer your own energy industry. Indeed, as Euronews noted shortly before COP27 opened, quote, leaders from across the European Union are gearing up for the COP27, the UN climate change conference that aims to put the brakes on climate change and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, a theoretical aspiration that has become increasingly detached from the reality on the ground, end quote. But what they meant was, quote, there is no credible pathway to 1.5C in place, a UN environmental report concluded last month, end quote. Whereas the actual reality on the ground, as the story subsequently acknowledged, is that, quote, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Greece, and Hungary have all announced plans to extend the lifetime of coal plants, reopen those that have been closed, or lift the cap on coal-burning hours. Austria, which celebrated the closure of its last coal plant in 2020, also proposed to reactivate its system to cope with emergency shortages, end quote. There's the reality on the ground. You have got to have energy. 
Over at Bloomberg, in a section called Green slash COP27, they had complained a day earlier that, quote, coal was meant to be history. Instead, its use is soaring. The demise of the dirtiest fossil fuel has been delayed as power shortages and the war in Ukraine drive consumption while China and India construct new plants, end quote. So, what it comes down to is there's no way to convince people they should freeze in the dark for an abstraction, especially not when winter, rather than heating, is hitting early and hard in many places. And now, back to COP. We've cut it up because it's easier to digest in small portions. If you go back and look at old stories on the Climate Summit, which we don't recommend unless your idea of fun is as off-center as our own, so we did it for you and please send us money for therapy as well as research, you can read stuff like The Economist's semi-chirpy quote, Next week, delegates from all over the world will flock to Egypt for COP27, the United Nations annual climate summit. They will discuss what governments must do to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions enough to avoid the most dangerous levels of global warming, end quote. Wanna bet? Oh, and the author followed that up by suggesting seven books under the heading What to Read to Understand Climate Change, end quote, that included How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by that noted climate scientist Bill Gates and Climate Justice by that noted climate scientist, former Irish President Mary Robinson. And then it said to read the sixth IPCC assessment report, but only the summaries for policymakers, which are actually the last part you should read because they're the bit where the politicians misrepresent what the scientists said based on their own preconception of what the scientists should have said and then go, scientists say when challenged. And incredibly, from there, the list goes downhill because next is How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Mom. If we were to advertise How to Blow Up a Magazine, The Economist might call a cop. And it also recommended the novel The Ministry for the Future by Kim Robinson, a self-proclaimed democratic socialist, and then a book recommending geoengineering. But nothing even by a lukewarm skeptic like Stephen Coonan that would reveal to you that there's another side to the story. Such, I fear, is modern journalism. In which spirit, as COP27's death agony stretched out, the Norwegian Minister of Climate and the Environment apparently decided he might as well be hanged for a sheep as for a lamb and ranted that the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius of warming from the depths of the Little Ice Age is that, quote, entire countries that are present here will simply disappear from the surface of the planet. Most of all the ice on the world will melt. Cities we love and live in will be gone, end quote. Oh, Really? We don't even believe a computer model said that would happen, let alone that a sane person would believe it if a computer model did say so. And yet, such is the quality of rhetoric and of journalism, as the New York Times enthusiastically seconded these ravings by a politician who's a political scientist with a degree in politics. In the newsletter, we also note, as part of our Everybody Knows series, that Canada's Department of Natural Resources worried that, quote, communities across Canada face the consequences of more frequent and more severe floods and windstorms, heavier snow loads, and longer, hotter heat waves, among other impacts, end quote. And so, quote, the Honorable Jonathan Wilkinson, Minister of Natural Resources, shared the results of two projects that have increased the capacity of New Brunswickers to adapt to climate change, end quote. And how does the minister know these things are happening? As with everything else, they know because everybody knows. And, as usual, we check anyway. First, flooding, because it's one of those topics that the IPCC goes to some pains to make clear. In the latest, sixth assessment report, Working Group Chapter 11, page 55, not the summary for policymakers, they say, quote, In Canada, there is a lack of detectable trends in observed annual maximum daily or shorter duration precipitation, end quote. 
As for wind speeds, let's begin with Canada's Changing Climate Report, the government's own synthesis of the available evidence on all things climatic. Well, not all, because they say there isn't enough data to draw conclusions about changing wind speeds. Uh, except offshore, near the Maritimes, where wind speeds are declining slightly. Then, we turn to our old Climate Emergency Tour data friends at weatherstats.ca to obtain the available record on annual maximum wind gusts in Fredericton, which is the capital of the Canadian province of New Brunswick that had Minister Wilkinson so worried. It goes back to 1955, and here's the chart. Some crisis, that is. It peaked in 1971, with 2022 on track to tie 2004 and 2007 as the minimum years. Still, free money for votes. Uh, uh, we mean climate adaptation. Now, if you're wondering how they get it so wrong, you should ask some hot American models. Specifically the ones that Roy Spencer found when he looked at 36 computer simulations of U.S. land surface temperature and found that if you punched in the known increase in greenhouse gases over the past 50 years, 1973 to 2022, and asked them what would happen by 2022, many of them showed too much warming. Uh, no, wait. Most of them showed—actually, all of them did. Every single solitary model warmed too much compared to known observations. So it's not just random error, it's a big, hot, red thumb on the scale. In the newsletter, we also visit the co2science.org archive for another look at how the models, or rather their programmers, predict equilibrium climate sensitivity, or ECS. That's the amount of warming to be expected if CO2 in the atmosphere doubles. After hovering for four decades somewhere between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees Celsius, which is already too large a gap for useful prediction, they actually started ramping up recently past 4.5. But looking at, of all things, historical data, specifically the early Eocene climatic optimum, that's around 50 million years ago, when CO2 concentrations were between three and nine times the recent pre-industrial value, the computer said the Eocene would be way hotter than we believe it actually was. In some cases, hot enough to pretty much kill all the plants. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and when the models get the past wrong, for some reason, I don't trust them on the future.